0: Uh, This morning is really the last, next to last Sunday, I should say. I'll have, hopefully, Lord willing, the privilege of speaking one more time for uh, next Sunday about the whole concept of a biblical worldview and wrapping it up and seeing how we can best learn to apply this in our lives. But this morning, the focus on our aspect of the worldview relates to economics and history. We asked the question how a biblical worldview provides the proper perspective on economics which doesn't sound by the way like a very interesting subject but it is when you really get down to the biblical worldview about it and also on history which to me has always been a fascinating subject but I realize and appreciate the fact that for some people it's not they just don't like to look at things historically but to me it's been a fascination ever since I was a kid and been a hobby of mine, especially the aspect of military history since I was 14. So we come this morning to focus on economics and history, but let's just review briefly for a moment, what is, what is it about this thing called the worldview? How do we define it? Remember, it's any ideology, philosophy, or a theology, movement, or religion that provides an overarching understanding of God, the world, and man's relation to God and the world. And again, I took that from David Noble, understanding the times, the religious worldviews of our day, and the search for truth that he wrote back in 1991. Remember, what we're hoping to do more than anything else is, is to weave together the tapestry of the whole aspect of a biblical worldview as it relates to all of those ten disciplines we mentioned from uh, theology all the way through to, uh, to history. And economics and history in particular this morning. But let's take another look again from David Noble, who I think is a fantastic guy who has been, he's really devoted his life at Summit Ministries to this whole thing of equipping Christians with a proper perspective on the scriptures of God, in other words, a biblical worldview. And he defines that very simply a worldview is a bundle of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and values. It is just but one stick in a bundle that you're carrying, and all of those bundles have labels, if you will, ten to be exact. And the one bundle, or the one stick, is called theology. And remember, we've said with the very second sermon of this series that uh, theology is our view of God. How do we view God? And basically, as Christians, our theology is theistic. We believe in God, a supernatural God. So therefore, we have one of two, three choices, basically, in this world today. We have a theistic worldview and a supernatural God, or we believe, in essence, in no God. That's atheism. That's atheistic. Or we believe in a pantheistic God, many gods, many different types of gods at all kind of levels. That's Hinduism, for, for an example. Cosmic uh, humanism also believes in a variety of gods, if you will, but... This morning, let's focus on the aspect of those disciplines called economics and history. Economics being the management of resources, whether by an individual or society, that essentially asks the question, what about money? What do I do about this? How do I handle the resources that God has given me? History is the study of past persons, places, and events that illustrate, or that influence I should, the present and the future. The asking the question, what about the past? How do I evaluate that? What does it mean to me? Remember, all of those that we looked at have relationship to this, but this morning, let's focus on economics. And let's look at the key idea about economics. It is, indeed, God's wonderful plan of economy, which is the duty of work, or to work, that gives rise to the right of property. We'll talk about that in greater detail in a moment which in turn creates the duty to use that property wisely. Again, it's God's wonderful plan of economy. The duty to work gives rise to the right of property, and which in turn creates the duty to use that property wisely. We'll talk in greater detail in just a few moments about stewardship, because this is what it's all in regards to. From a Christian worldview, we're talking about stewardship. An awesome responsibility. We'll define and explain how that fits in a moment. But when you think about it, when God gives us the privilege and the blessings of property, whether it is land or whether it's some of the possessions we own, he gives us a responsibility for that. We gain it, hopefully, rightfully by work, by the labor that we perform. But also that property has carries with it a responsibility. That's the stewardship aspect of it. And that is to take care of what God has given us, not only to manage it, but hopefully, if we are wise, and if we are seekers of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life, we'll leave that property in better shape than when we found it because of our stewardship. And indeed, if you think about it, if we don't, in a way, what we are really saying to God is, this doesn't really matter to me. And therefore, what we have is an attitude of ingratitude. We don't care. We're not thankful for what God has given. So the Bible encourages us in every way possible to be thankful for what God has given. And that is part of the view of his, on, on God's ec- plan of economy. Let's also define two aspects that are very prevalent in our society today, because the economies that we live in are either capitalistic, or they're socialistic. And basically, if we were to define capitalism, it's simply defined as this. It's an economic system in which all or most of the means of production and distribution, that's it. For instance, we're talking about land, railroads, economies, or factories, I should say. They are privately owned and operated for profit. That's capitalism. Socialism, on the other hand, is an economic system in which the ownership an operation of the means of production and distribution are controlled by the government. In Marxist thinking, socialism, that is the abolition of private property, is the transitional phase between capitalism and communism. Uh, Socialism is kind of like the in-between thing. Ultimately, communism, there is no private property whatsoever by any stretch of the imagination. It's all owned by the proletariat, if you will. Uh, That's that's another thing, again, we could talk about that for at great length. But the fact is, is that there's a big difference between the capitalistic point of view and socialism. I can remember listening to a presentation by a fellow you've heard me refer to before, Brandon House, who uh, is the, the founder and, and, and primary disciple, if you will, of an uh, organization called Worldview Weekend. And he says, one of the things that's happening in our society today is that there's this great clash between capitalism and socialism. And he said there's something that came about, especially under Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, and I think it's probably happening today, that there is this clash of these two competing worldviews, these two different philosophies, these two different economic systems. And what is happening in our society, and has been happening for some time, and you probably have heard this, called the third way, The third way, which is a consolidation, if you will, an amalgamation of those particular philosophies into a third way of emerging between the two. And we're seeing that more in our society today than I think we ever have before. No society is going to be absolutely pure, capitalistic or totally socialistic, uh, though there have been attempts, obviously, in human history to do that. But the fact is is that we're seeing this clash of cultures, of economic systems, of competing world views, and and that is the emergence of, unfortunately, if you really look at it, and explore it in, in its depth, of this third way. Another thing that comes to pass, and this, listening to a great DVD by David Noble here a few weeks ago, was his comment that 1883 marked a very significant turning point in history. That was the year in which Karl Marx died, for one thing, and a fellow by the name of John Maynard Keynes uh, was, uh, was born. John Maynard Keynes is the, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, the creator of that philosophy today that government should control all aspects of our economy. In other words, government should be making massive investments in the economy. It's anything but a small government philosophy. But also formed that year was an, was an organization called the Fabian Society. And the Fabian Society, which became known as that exactly seven years later after its founding, uh, is an organization that believes that uh, communism, and, uh, by revolution, is not the way to go. That socialism ought to be brought about by a means of evolution, of gradualism, which I think is probably one of the greatest tools that Satan's ever perpetrated upon our society gradualism You don't do things in a massive change overnight, but it happens slowly. It's a trickling effect, if you will, that eventually the society begins to change. And if you want an example of that other than economics, you only have to look at back to the 70s and see what and take stock of the attitude that existed initially when homosexuals began, began coming out of the closet. And as a consequence, uh, uh, there was an uproar about that. As a matter of fact, there were people taking very definite stands. And yet today, because of the propaganda effect that has been launched by the homosexual uh, community and their agenda, there is probably a greater acceptance of that than there ever has been before. Uh, It happened gradually over a period of time. And so it does with some of these economic systems that that collide together together. in our society today, the clash between capitalism and socialism. But let's look at a contrast here just briefly. In this next slide it says, one dominant feature of capitalism is economic freedom, the right of people to exchange things voluntarily, free from force, fraud, and theft. Capitalism is more than this, of course, but its concern with free exchange is obvious. Socialism, on the other hand, seeks to replace the freedom of the market with a group of central planners who exercise control over essential market functions. Remember last week we talked and we defined that word statism? And statism is essentially that philosophy or that worldview that really says that all economic planning, all, and matter of fact, all society's rules and regulations, ought to be controlled from a central point of government. And that's the kind of philosophy we find more prevalent today than ever before. This comment was made by Dr. Uh, Ronald Nash, who died in 2006. He was a philo- uh, professor of philosophy at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. He was also renowned as a kind of an evangelical Baptist philosopher and apologist in the Calvinist tradition, but uh, Dr. Nash wrote a lot of books about Uh, worldviews, apologetics, and ethics and theology. I thought there was an interesting comment that I read by a fellow by the name of Frederick Ingalls, who was one of the cohorts with Karl Marx. And he made this comment. He says, If some few passages of the Bible may be favorable to communism, the general spirit of its doctrines is nevertheless totally opposed to it. There might be some aspects of scripture that sound favorable to communism, but in essence, the whole of the scriptures are totally opposed to it. That's from Frederick Engels himself. But let's look at a moment what the Bible really says about economics. One of the prime examples I want to offer up to you this morning is Proverbs 31, beginning in verse 10, going through verse 30, is the story of the excellent wife. Most of you have probably read this, especially... Women, you've heard men refer to, this is the excellent wife, and of course she is. But in essence, what we have here, beginning there, it says, an excellent wife, who can find? And in verse 16, it says, she considers a field and buys it. And from her earnings, or her profits, she plants a vineyard. Also, it says in verse 20, she extends her hand to the poor and stretches out her hands to the needy. In verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Give her the product of her hands, it says in verse 31, and let her works praise her in the gates. And we have here an example of property ownership, the prophets making a profit because she did that when she bought the field and then planted the vineyard. And then out of her resources, she considers the poor And this is an important thing for us to understand. God doesn't bless us with wealth and well-being so that we can spend it on our own pleasures. He intends for us to use it for his glory. It glorifies God when we extend the hand to the poor and the needy. That's one thing the scriptures make clear to us. It couldn't be much clearer than that. And we're not preaching a social gospel. We're preaching a gospel of generosity. Just as God was generous and gracious to us, so we ought to be generous and gracious to, every, uh, to all others. It talks about her labors, that she produces goods for selling, if you will. and That's, that's a manufacturing process. She gives, uh, the, it says, the belts, she makes belts for the tradesmen. And she gives the product of her hands, so she's free to do with her labor as she pleases, and the the products that she produces. And lastly, it says her labor is to be commended. She is to be commended for this. It is a commendable thing when people work with their hands to produce something that serves a purpose. So that's Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 30. Let's look at Isaiah 26. uh, Pardon me, Isaiah 65. I'm going to ask you in your Bibles to turn for just a moment. To Isaiah chapter 65. I think this is significant, rather than just read it from the screen. Let's look at Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 20 instead of 21. It says, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought to be accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. And this is God's promise to the prophet Isaiah, by the way, of the Millennium Kingdom, because you just look over a few verses at the end of the chapter and it talks about the wolf laying down with the lamb. The fact is is that God intends, if he intends, in his millennial kingdom, to provide us with the work of our hands in terms of building houses and occupying them, it certainly gives some kind of a favorable inclination that God has a purpose in all of this. If you look over at Jeremiah chapter thirty 2 just a few pages over from there Jeremiah chapter 32 beginning in verses 44 and it says this men will buy fields for money sign and seal deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev, for I will give I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Think about what he's saying here. I'm going to enable them to buy fields for money, sign and seal assign uh, and seal deeds, and call in witnesses from the land of Benjamin and all of all of Judea. You know, when you really get down to it, God has a purpose in our owning of land. He has a purpose in enabling us to build houses in which to live and provide shelter for our families. Let's talk a little further about uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 4. It says here, talking about the story of Ananias, "But "...but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira brought a piece of property." sold a piece of property, and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now the evil here is not that Ananias owned property, or that he sold it probably for a profit. doesn't say that, but more likely that's what happened. Or that he had some control over it and decide what he wanted to do. The deed that, that Ananias did that was evil in the sight of God and in the apostle Peter, was the fact that he lied about it. He obviously wanted the favor of man, and he pretended to give more than what he actually did give. And he lied to God and the Holy Spirit, and God dealt with him. Remember, rather severely in that case. And also, soon after that, after they had picked him up and moved him out, in came his wife, Sapphira, and she, too, died as a consequence. Now, the fact is, is that there's nothing evil about owning property. There's nothing evil about selling it for a profit. There's nothing evil about keeping it for yourself or doing whatever with it that you please. The fact is, is that we need to be honest with God and how we deal with God and man and with respect to the stewardship for which God gives us. Let's look also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. But rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. He must labor, performing with his hands, hands that is good, what's good, and so that he will have something to give to the poor. Acts 2, 24. And by the way, this is the proof text of uh, of, of socialism, if you will. And that says this. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, they were doing it from house to house. I think this is a great proof text for small groups, if you will, and meeting together. If you ever want to have any question about the purpose of small groups, just read this passage of Scripture. But the fact is, socialism are those who are Christians, by the way, that claim that socialism, by the way, is much better because capitalism encourages greed and envy. And therefore, when man owns property, uh, he, he tends to become greedy about it and selfish and so, therefore, it's better that there be no property ownership at all. Even You have to ignore a lot of other texts in the Bible to think that way. But the fact is, they were meeting from house to fa- house for the purpose... And, by the, and and think about this. The house to house, they, they more than likely owned some property. They might have sold it. They might have still held it at that time. Or they were using it as God was leading them to, uh, to, to do so. But the fact is, they were prompting mostly the fellowship of believers, and that was one of the major purposes of the house-to-house meetings, of breaking bread together and enjoying the fellowship of believers and encouraging one another in Jesus Christ. Uh, Though socialists misinterpret that, I feel, considerably. Let's look at another passage of scripture. It comes from the Ten Commandments, and it says this, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Now, if everything was owned in common, we wouldn't have a problem with stealing, would we? Because it would just be, it would be everyone's, and you couldn't steal something that belonged to everyone because it was as much yours as it was anyone else's. The fact is, you. it makes it clear here in that commandment, you shall not steal. If you've got any questions, go to the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor nothing that is his you shall covet or you shall desire that's pretty clear that there is a right for a person to own an ox and a donkey have a wife and male and female servants if you will if he's that fil- that that rich in that case but the fact is is that it's clear that we are not to covet those things property a private property actually encourages a more careful attitude towards scarce resources than does public property. It encourages, I believe, in actuality, when we get to following Christ in the truest sense of the word, it encourages that stewardship that we need to have in the way that we manage God's resources that, for which he's given us charge. Let's talk a little bit about some other scriptures that kind of confirm ownership. And you'll see in Genesis 23 verses 13 and 20. Abraham buys a, a field in this in this passage of scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Israel goes in to possess the land. In Ruth 2, Boaz is a rich man who of great wealth and has a field. And remember Ruth goes in to, to take gleanings from the field. And here's a man who's in the lineage of Christ. And also Jeremiah, we read Isaiah 65 and Jeremiah 32, but Psalms 112 talks about wealth and riches in the house of the believer. Proverbs 31, we talked about, this is the wife, the excellent wife, who buys a field and sells it for a profit. Micah 1-4 talks about God owns his, where man owns his own ven, a vineyard and his own fi- fig tree. Luke twelve thirteen through fourteen talks about life as more than possessions, and lastly we talked about the scripture out of Luke, out of Acts five one through four where Ananias had property and could sell it and control it as he, as he saw fit. Genesis thirteen, or pardon me, Genesis three seventeen says, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, and because of man's rebellion and his sins against God, being cast from the Garden of Eden, the perfect place that God had created for him. Man was destined to toil for the rest of his life. But that doesn't mean that toil is necessarily a curse. Toil is something God gives us as a privilege. It's our labor, our work. There's nothing wrong with that. In Proverbs 10, 4 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. But the hand of the diligent becomes rich. But the hand of the diligent becomes rich. You look at overall Proverbs. Uh, You come up with with a conclusion that God rewards diligence. Hard work is a blessing, not a curse. It's God's plan of economy. And let's look at then understanding stewardship, because this is important in the light of understanding fully what God means by his economy. Stewardship is the science, art, and skill of responsible and accountable management of resources. That's defined again by David Noble. Christians believe that God is the ultimate source of everything and that human beings have been given the responsibility to manage and care for his creation. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, and when he created man in his own image, God gave him charge of every living thing. Every living thing. That's stewardship. God gave him the responsibility for every living thing. Also, just as another example, in Matthew chapter 25, remember this parable of the master and the talents? And he gave five talents to one, two talents to another, one to another. And remember what happened? And in verse 29, it summarizes, "...for everyone who has, more will be given." And he who has an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even that which he does have, shall be taken away. God blesses people when they use things in accordance with his divine plan of economy. When we do it with stewardship, God promises the blessings of that. That doesn't mean blessings of wealth. We're not talking about getting rich. This is not a health and wealth kind of sermon, I can guarantee you. The fact is, is that God blesses men and women when what he gives them, they use with an attitude of stewardship, and therefore do it for his glory, manage it, (coughs) hopefully to increase it, to make it better than anything else. What an awesome privilege it is. If If we have been good stewards, at the end of our life, there's something left that is worthwhile to give to our children and our grandchildren as a blessing to them and ever since the Word. Let's talk about some other various views of the of, on economics. Four points I want to make here. In this, justice requires equality before the law, not equality of, of incomes or abilities. I think it's important for us to understand that the, the message of the Bible, with respect to our talents and our gifts and our blessings, is not... Equality with one another. God is going to give some five talents, and others two, and others one. And hopefully we won't be like this, the, uh, the servant who took the one that was given by the master and buried it, because he knew that that master was going to be rather forceful in the way he dealt with him, and so therefore he wanted to make sure that he didn't lose it, so he wouldn't buried it. Whereas the other two servants took what was given to them and multiplied it. And especially, he said, that's why God will give to those who, who have and even more. And to the one who did not have, he took away what he did have. The fact is that given the diversity and the liberty of human life, no fair or equal system can possibly demand equal outcomes. A democratic system depends for its legitimacy, therefore, not upon equal results, but upon a sense of equal opportunity. This was a quote by Michael Novak, a uh, fellow who is well-renowned as a philosopher, journalist, and novelist, and a diplomat. But it says that what we need to understand, God is looking for us to be impartial. We are not to favor the rich man because he's rich, nor are we to give preference to the poor man because he's poor. We are to be impartial, fair, and just as God leads us to be. That's the message of the scriptures. The only way to arrive at equal fruits, and this is by E. Calvin Beisner, the only way to arrive at equal fruits is to equalize behavior, and that requires robbing men of their liberty and making them slaves. That's the only way we can guarantee, if you will, the equal results. So this last point, or I should say the second point, in a capitalistic system, Citizens are free to determine how they will spend their money and how they will use their resources. And even further than that, it says economic freedom and the right to private property are crucial for political freedom. We talked about politics last Sunday and the government. And if indeed uh, there is to be that kind of political freedom, there is going to have to be economic freedom. It's going to be interesting in this course of history to judge what's going to happen in in, uh, in Red Red China, the People's Republic of China. Remember, it was only about 20 years or so ago, 30 at the most, when they decided that in order for the standard of living to increase in their society, they were going to have to adapt to some capitalistic methods. Their centralized form of government, which had been going on since its creation in 1948, had not produced the kind of uh, results that they hoped. And matter of fact, the Soviet Union is another perfect example of that. But the Chinese, in particular, were examples, especially after they went through the Cultural Revolution in 1964 and tomorrow. The fact is, is that that kind of experiment is going to be interesting to see because what they've allowed men to have, men and women to do, is to have a certain amount of political freedom, if you will, very guarded, very loosely, or very tightly controlled but mostly economic freedom to become entrepreneurs, to create wealth. And that's how wealth is basically created, by entrepreneurs. And so consequently, it's going to be interesting to see how this turns about. Remember this clash we talked about earlier? The clash of two competing worldviews? Well, that's the way it's going to be in that day and age. We're going to see what the conclusion of this is. Lastly is this quote by John Wesley. Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Doesn't that kind of comply with Proverbs 31 about the excellent wife? Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. I think it's an awesome summary of a worldview in economics. Let's talk for a moment about history this morning. The key idea on history. Archaeology has consistently supported the assertion that the Bible is a trustworthy historical document. And think about this, as in 2 Timothy 3.16, saying, All Scripture is, the, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. If that is the case, if all scriptures inspired by God, and all agree theologically that the Scriptures as originally given in their form in those days, when they first, when the Holy Spirit moved upon man, like the Apostle Paul, to dictate his letters to the church at Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and so on, that those scriptures were divinely inspired and ever since the word. If that be the case, then why wouldn't they still be divinely inspired? Is our God so weak, is He so incapable that He could not protect the scriptures and still have them uh, give them to us in this day and age? in a trustworthy fashion, in a trustworthy condition, where we can have confidence in what God has said through his revealed word? I think the answer to that is yes, he can. He wouldn't be much of a God. Remember, this is the God who raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory. And if that's the case, if he can raise Jesus from the dead, could he not give us scriptures that are trustworthy today? And suitable for training and reproof and correction and, and all these other things that we need for the rule of life. I think he can. I think he does. I think that's what it's really all about when it comes down to history. I think biblical archaeology has proven in case after case after case, when if you listen to the National Geographic Channel, you'll hear that, you know, they're not even sure that there were Jews. There was not even an Israel. Much less a King David or a King Solomon. All these things were mythical. They're fables. And if you hear some people speak, they say, Jesus wasn't real. He's he's just a legend. It's a story. But the fact is, there is a historical Jesus. Before we get to that, let's look at the, the basis for a biblical worldview. As it relates to history. Christians believe that the basis for their worldview appeared in human history in the form of Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago. That's the essence of it. This man named Jesus of Nazareth appeared in history by divine appointment for God. The Christian also believes that the Bible is God's revealed word in the form of a trustworthy book that is grounded in history. And there have been much criticism over the uh, many skeptics have impugned The scriptures, and many have said this isn't trustworthy. This could not be true. And then, lo and behold, they found out by archaeological means that it is. As I understand it, by the fact, a lot of archaeology was intended to originally prove that the scriptures were wrong. But what they ended up doing is proving that the scriptures were right. So praise God for that. The Bible and history. Some key questions I want to ask. Three of them for and answer these questions for you. Can we trust the Bible? to tell us the truth about God's actions in history? Can we trust the Bible to tell us the truth about God's actions in history? Because that's exactly what the Bible does. I think the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, we can trust the Bible to do just that. It says in 1 John 5.9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son that's John chapter 5 verse John chapter 5 verse 9 today's scholars believe I think without a question that there was an historical Jesus even H.G. Wells who was an avowed atheist said this he said the four gospels were certainly in existence a few decades after Christ's death H.G. Wells said that based on his knowledge of history and he was truly one who was knowledgeable about history when you read uh, another scholar by the name of Gleason Archer, uh, he made this comment. He said, even though the two copies of Isaiah uh, near the Dead Seas in 1947, those are the ones that were discovered in the caves in, in the Dead Sea in 47 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, which was A.D. 980, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible, in more than 95% of the text, the 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variation in spelling. So 95% was exactly the same after a thousand years, over a period of thousand years, as these manuscripts were copied and then recopied again and again and again. This is why I'm confident that God is able... To protect his word and deliver to us a document suitable and trustworthy in ever since. Jesus, and let's talk about the histor hy- hyster- the historic, the, hyster- the you know, I knew I'd come out to this. I pronounced it in my sleep last night. But, you know, you do that kind of thing and you get to the point where you want to say it and it cannot come out by any stretch of imagination. Well, that's the case with me today. But this is the historical evidence of Jesus, he is a historical character. He was mentioned twice by Josephus in his manuscripts called the Antiquities of the Jews. He was also mentioned by a historian in the first century, uh, by the name, or second century actually, by the name of Cornelius Tac- 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 Tacitus, that quoted that it was about Christus. It was Christus he called Christ, who was put to death by Pontius Pilate and his followers, uh, followers or, or around that period of time. Also, Brutz Metzger, who is a well-renowned biblical scholar and a textual critic, has said this. He said, the early non-Christian testimonies concerning Jesus, though scanty, are sufficient to prove that he was a historical character who lived in Palestine in the early years of the first century, that he gathered a group of followers about himself, and he was condemned to death by Pontius Pilate. So I think there is evidence that overwhelms, and matter of fact, though it's scanty, it still is evidence that historically reliable that Jesus was real. He was an historical character that walked upon the face of the earth. Now, there's another aspect of that, and that's the resurrection in history. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said, After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And so what he's saying here is that in every essence there were witness, eyewitnesses to this, to this situation that, uh, that, we, had, that we encountered through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'd like to just read, just to remind you of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning in verse 13. He says this, because this was the continuation of Paul's thoughts. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. But if the dead were not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are, we are of all men most to be pitied. What a, what a declaration Paul has made here. If there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ, then all that we have done is utterly in vain, and we're lost. We're no better off than the atheist. We're no better off than any other person holding a differing worldview from a biblical worldview. We're just no different. We just happen to profess belief in this. But if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we are without hope in this world. The fact is, is the resurrection is the historical event that I would call the watershed event of all history. A watershed event is a turning point, a significant event or time or period in history in which all that happened before was looking toward that point when it did happen. And all that happened afterwards looks back to that point because it is so significant. The fact is, is that the watershed event of all human history is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that occurred especially in that 33-year period in which he lived upon this earth, and especially at the time when he conquered death forever and arose from the grave. That is the watershed event of all human history. No exceptions. Now that's a biblical worldview. Obviously the secular humanist does not believe that since there's no life outside of this body. And once this shell passes away, that's it. There's nothing left. There's no soul that exists after death. Much less has the spirit been born again and believers in Jesus Christ look forward to the fact that we will be with him even after we die we know we will be with him so the life death and, death and resurrection and let me just quote this one again verse or quote from david noble the central difference between the christian view of history and that of marxism and humanism comes down to one point either human history was ordained by god and is directed by him toward an ultimate conclusion or human history began due to a random a spark in the prebiotic soup and has only chance to thank for its present course now think about that when you talk about where the secular humanist worldview takes you and it's hopelessness because we don't believe in God no theistic worldview let's talk about God's purpose before we close in history therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who has been appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, in Acts 17, beginning in verse 30. Also in Romans 2.16, on that day, when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The purpose of history is leading to that point when Jesus shall come again, and then we shall have a period. After his millennial reign, when the judgment shall take place, the great white throne judgment that refers to in Revelations, and God will create a new heaven and a new earth, because he's going to judge the living and the dead. What an awesome thing it is. Because we look at history as Christians as linear, by the way. It's a linear viewpoint. It has a beginning. It has an end. In the biblical worldview, history is linear, there was a, in the, in the biblical worldview, history is linear. There was a specific beginning, that's at God's creation. A present that is being directed by God toward a specific end, that's the restoration of mankind, our redemption. And the future when God will judge all mankind and create a new heaven and a new earth. In contrast, secular humanism believes that history is to be understood in terms of unguided evolution and the guidance of human integri- or ingenuity and intelligence. This is called historical evolution. So that's the contrasting worldview in terms of history. We view it as linear because there is a beginning, there is a present, there is an end. God promises that to us. Let's summarize the biblical worldview on history. While the humanists, both secular and cosmic, and the Marxists see mankind's salvation in the distant future in the form of a utopian society. The Christian sees redemption offered to mankind 2,000 years ago and working as powerfully today as it did then. If this is true, then the wise will discover all they can about Jesus Christ. If this is true, then the wise will discover all they can about Jesus Christ. The biblical worldview. Supports and centers on the reliability of God's revealed word to us. We have, we have something that is trustworthy, something in which we can place our confidence. It tells us about who God is and what he has done. It reveals his order of redemption in Jesus Christ, his son. What an awesome gift he has given us. And think about this in comparison to Christians many centuries ago who struggled to know the truth, whose the truth of God was essentially doled out to them by priests who didn't probably understand it very well themselves. But today, we have God's written word. And we have the Holy Spirit who testifies to our spirit so that we can have understanding of that word. It is an awesome privilege in every sense of the word to be able to hold to a biblical worldview, to be able to see things the way God sees them, and to see things the way Christ sees them, to have the mind of Christ within us. That's awesome. That's an awesome privilege. That's available to every single one of us, without exception. None of us have to be... Indoctrinated in some, some kind of esoteric philosophy or society in order to have understanding. We have been given the ability to have that understanding. All we need to do is seek the face of God and understand what He's doing and what He has done and what He will do. What a privilege it is to have a biblical worldview. I'd like to close by just saying here, why do we need that biblical worldview? And this is the same visual I used last week. I want you to remember this because it's important. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Peter wrote to church and said, But sanctify Christ in your hearts always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. God expects us, by the way, I believe with all my heart, for us to have a biblical worldview. We see the world through the prism that God has given us in Christ Jesus. That's what our expectation should be. That should be the reality of how we live. And that the purpose is to bring down the speculations of man, the wisdom of man, which has been purported against the knowledge of God, and to destroy those strongholds with the knowledge of God's truth. That's why he expects us to be able to give an account of the faith and the hope that is within us. The only way I think we can adequately and truthfully do that is if we hold to a biblical worldview. It's not just a way. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just some kind of thing that we talk about in general. It is something with a purpose. And it should be a a reality to us as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father and God, thank you that your word is real, that it is alive and active, that it is divinely inspired. In every way, God, you have given us a trustworthy testimony of who you are as our God and creator and who Jesus Christ is as our Savior and Lord, Master and King. Father, thank you for that awesome privilege. Thank you that you are calling us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, to be able to give a defense of the hope that is within us, an account, God, to the world that testifies boldly, but speaking the word in truth with reverence, Nevertheless, speaking the word with truth and love of the hope that is within us. Thank you for that hope in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reality of what you have done for us, a salvation so wonderful, so good, so marvelous that we cannot even begin to understand. Father, simply thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.